I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones and this week I'm talking to John Lanchester, a contributing editor at the LRB and author of many books, most recently Reality and Other Stories. He has a piece in the current issue of the paper on cheating in sport, or more specifically on the things you see happen while you're watching or playing a game that are against its rules, but sometimes within its ethos. Hello John and thank you very much for joining me again. Hi Tom, thanks for having me. So the Olympics are underway and Great Britain have won their first medals. But as you say in the piece, the kind of cheating you're interested in isn't the kind that goes on, or can go on, I should say, at the Olympics. Especially doping and everything around doping, which comes under the rubric of what you call invisible cheating. You talk about visible cheating. And in football, if we begin with football, the question of diving on the one hand and professional fouls on the other. And there were sort of two classic examples of of diving that you mentioned in your piece toward in the final rounds of the of Euro 2020. One was Immobile and the other was, was Sterling. So I don't know if you want to talk a bit about what they did and, and why it was okay or, or wasn't okay. Yeah, no, well, it's the thing that interests me, this distinction between breaking the rules, but, you know, it's kind of what professionals do and stuff that's over the line. And maybe the commonest form of that is just diving. It's exaggerating contact. The highest level of it, I think, the highest level of the art is when there is faint contact, but the player goes down as if properly fouled. And the really classic examples of the genre, the best of them are when you the first time you watch it, you actually think it's a foul. I remember Michael Owen in one of the World Cups, his Star World Cup, which one was that? It was one of the 2000 World Cups, went through and appeared to be brutally hacked down in the penalty area by an Argentine defender. And then actually when you watch it again... It wasn't clear there was any contact at all. And I was watching it with a non-England supporting friend who annoyed me at the time by saying, you know, the thing is it was such a good dive it deserved a penalty. <laughs> and then in hindsight, actually, I think that's that is a category, you know. I mean it's so they're sort of so accom- there is a contact, they go down like they've just been sniped and the penalty is awarded. And you see that all the time. Sterling's very good at it, Kane's very good at it despite the fact that we tend, you know, historically we've regarded that as the exclusive province of cheating foreigners. Um, <laughs> actually, English English players have got very, very accomplished at that. And I think it's fair to say that Sterling's, the penalty Sterling won in the semi-final against Denmark was in that category. And then Immobile, it was in, was it against Spain or was it in the group stage? Um, quarterfinal, maybe? I think Quarterfinal, maybe. Um, and that was sort of slightly more more in the arena of pure physical comedy. <laughs> which Keaton and Chaplin would have been proud, that there's sort of non-contact. He, as I say, goes down like he's been sniped by a Barrett 50 at one kilometre range, kind of collapses in a heap. 
And then about 10 seconds later, I think Chiesa maybe from the same move then stuck the ball in the net, at which point Immobile simply sort of looked around and you just thought it was an oxymoron and sheepishly celebrated <laughs> the ensuing goal. You know, he sort of got up. I think my memory is he sort of looked over his shoulder to check that that thing that that's when no one's watching and then jogged across to join in the celebrations, having apparently been, you know, touch and go whether he was alive. <laughs> but but it is one of those things, it's as it, you know, when the ball, when the ball goes off, both teams claim the throw-in. I mean, there's a sense, or, or in cricket, when you, you know, you claim LBW, I mean, I know that you have to claim it to get it, but there's a sense in which if you've been fouled, you've been touched, in a sense, the severity of it doesn't matter. The other, the other player, he's touched you, he hasn't got the ball, you've lost the ball, you want to go down in the hope of getting the free kick, you want to make sure the ref has seen the foul. I mean, there's a sense in which it's it's a big pitch, you need to signal largely to, to convey the fact of the foul as you perceive it. Well, there is a, an element of referee management. I think the thing about, there's a um, Tom Stoppard's play about, I think it was initially a radio play. Yeah, professional foul. Professional foul. And he actually makes that point about the fact that Every single time the ball goes into touch, without exception, both players appeal. You know, there's something kind of exhausting and it's interesting. There's a, you could argue there's a decadence in that, that there's no attempt to play according to uh, any sense of what the spirit of the game might be, that you know perfectly well. Because every single time the you know, players, 99% of the time players know who touched it last, but they never admit it. And that is like saying the code of the game demands that you cheat effectively. You know, you know you kicked it out, but you're never going to admit it. I mean, it's an interesting contrast with the days when the penalty first came in. The Corinthians, who were the posh amateur team, penalties were, you know, weren't always part of football. They were invented, you know, the journalist Robert McCrum, mm. they were invented by his grandfather. Oh, really? who's a a senior figure in football, association football, as I would have called it, in Northern Ireland. Yeah, so McCrum's grandfather invented the penalty. And it was controversial among some circles in football, like the Corinthians, because it implied that they deliberately fouled a man. They would have said, if you foul a man in the penalty area, it's dishonourable. So the Corinthians wouldn't defend penalties. The goalkeeper would stand next to the post on one side. (laughs) and allow the opposition to tap the ball in because the imputation against their honour was so offensive that you know they had no choice but to concede a goal. Now, that spirit has completely gone. I mean, obviously, it seems a bit ridiculous from a modern perspective, but that whole side is just entirely absent from football, from professional football, but even from, you know, the football I see being, you know, around the corner from the common, there's often a dozen games going on on mark pitches at the weekend. And, you know, the, it's just a different code. You know, the ball goes off, both both players appeal. And it's sort of barely, although, you know, obviously in some sense it is cheating, it doesn't count. It's fully within the ethos, spirit of the game, that you do exaggerate contact, you do appeal. There is a, there is a psychological element. I mean, it's one of the things that always baffled me about McEnroe's in tennis, his, you know, his shouting about that the ball was in when it was clearly out and there was no way the umpire's going to change the decision so it's that and, and and in football as well when there's a you know there's a yellow card and the players all appeal against it i mean there's never been an occasion where a referee has gone oh no actually guys you're quite right i'm sorry puts the card back in his pocket and crosses the name off in the book i mean that doesn't that's never happened 
I mean, I don't know if McEnroe's ever talked about why he did it, but if he needed to sort of convince himself, because if you concede that you're hitting the ball out, does the psychological game collapse? Do you need to sort of work yourself up into believing that you're... And I wonder if there's, there's that aspect of it with the, with the throw-in in football as well. If you go, oh, no, 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 mate, you take it. It's your... Uh, I kicked it off. Silly me. You then concede a massive psychological advantage to the other team. Well, not massive, but a, a, enough of some kind of psychological advantage. But those things are complicated because, well, I, th- I think there's a lot to unpick there. Maybe we'll come back to McEnroe. I, 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 th- I think he's a slightly separate case. I mean, I think there's a question with him of the extent to which the tantrums were a form of cheating. You know, that he would, he was capable of either genuinely or apparently completely losing his temper. And then he would, I think it was a, one of the reasons I loved and admired him as a player technically, but I always felt that the tantrums, maybe the plural should be tantra, but the tantrums were on the edge of being a form of cheating because he would fully recover and the opponent often wouldn't. You know, they were like, I think Clive James actually said, you know, it was like a, a toddler having the kind of tantrum that every adult in the room is still shaking five minutes later, but the toddler's fully recovered in a second. You know, and those they would often happen at important moments in the match, and the momentum would shift. And that was, that was my, that was my. Although I loved and admired him as a player, I also, you know, I, I bluntly, when he was playing ball, I, would, I wanted ball to win because I felt he was playing within the spirit of the game, and McEnroe wasn't, because of, to me, artificiality of some of those outbursts and, and things. Um, the thing about the, you know, surrounding the ref or yelling at the ref and all that. I think the issue, though, is it's often counterproductive, you know, that you put, the ref is then put on his metal to not show that he's being manipulated. You know, that thing about if someone makes a huge fuss and drama, it becomes important to the referee to show that they're not influenced by it. And, yeah, I I think it actually might be very effective to say, no, no, I did, you know, I, I did kick it last. And and save it for when it does really matter, which is something that they often do in rugby. The thing about, you know, I mentioned in the piece, Sam Warburton said the best advice he was ever given was by Roman Poit, the referee. He said, you know, you can speak to me twice a half, three times if I'm having a bad game. And a bit like a ch- the challenges in tennis. Like the challenges in tennis. Um, though they don't, the, the challenges in tennis are without the element of psychological manipulation. They're just a clear cut. Thing where there's a well, they are, but I wonder. There are moments you sometimes see people that they they've it's out, it's clearly out, but it's towards the end of the set. It's an important moment. They've lost momentum, and they challenge the ball, which they know they're not going to win the challenge, but it buys them time. In that same way that what you're saying about McEnroe's tantrums, it could, they can they can be used as a way of, if not regaining the momentum of the match, at least kind of slowing the opponents. Sure, but those are, but firstly, those are, they're, they're finite, they're limited. You know, it's not like a McEnroe yeah. tantrum, which could go on for 10 minutes. <laughs> um, and it's also not the thing about the, you know, the tone of voice in which the player chat, well, there isn't a tone of voice, they just gesture, usually. Um, whereas the thing about the way that captains speak to the referee in rugby is it very often is the better they are at it, the lighter their touch, you know. Someone like Alan Wynne Jones, the Lions captain at the moment, he's a master at dealing with referees because he has this tremendous presence and authority as a player, most cap player in the history of the game. Just made this miraculous recovery four weeks from a dislocated shoulder to his back playing in the in the test team. But he he never harangues, he never berates, and he usually just asks a question. And that's clearly, I think, more more effective. You know, they don't try and 
evidently manipulate. They don't try and tell the referee what to think. The kind of, you know, I wonder if tone actually clearly works quite well with referees because they are, they do tend to be counter-suggestible, I think. So the reasons for the mobbing the referee, as you say, they're not expecting to change the decision. It must have something to do. I don't know if it's somehow connected with that neat, the sort of the hunger to win and know that somehow if you, if you start being nervous of, of fouling or nervous that you're breaking the rules or nervous that you're the one kicking it up, not that they ever would because they're professionals in it. So, but there must, there must be some reason why they do it. Well, I think the mobbing, I mean, the team that notoriously did it quite often were Alex Ferguson's Man United. And I think that was part of a, that was a sort of part of an adversarial culture that they were very, a sense of being hard done by, a sense of us against the world, a very strong sense of, a sort of internally generated sense of unfairness. You know, that was a big thing in the team. And notoriously, that that did seem to work. You had that thing of what's called Fergie time with Manchester United being allowed extra minutes, especially when they played at home, especially when they were behind. You know, that was the perception anyway. And even though, as you correctly point out, you know, the referee doesn't then say, oh, okay, I'll take the yellow card back. It, it can have a an effect on the team's psychology and it can have an effect on the tenor of the game. You know, Ferguson's a very astute man. If he didn't think that was helping, he'd have told his players to stop doing it. And a football player, well, who, in some ways, he does have a bit more of that willingness to concede when he's fouled and sort of friendliness and appearance of behaving reasonably towards the ref sometimes is, is the, uh, the Italian captain, Giorgio Chiellini, who's um, sort of a great master of, as you say in the piece, of what's called shithousery. I mean, there's a, there's a Twitter account called Football Shithousery, as there's a Twitter account called Everything. Uh, and 10 days, ago, 10 days ago, it showed or appeared to show an Italy fan's tattoo of Chiellini pulling Saka's shirt in the final. That moment when he just flagrantly grabbed his shirt, pulled him off, pulled him over. And my children aged 11 and 8 and they have both Italian and British citizenship so they'd take an uncomplicated enjoyment in the semi-finals but were supporting Italy in the final but they were shocked by that by the shirt pulling uh, but an Italian friend watching it, the game with us said but you know you take the it's, if he looks like he's going to score you take the yellow card it's, it's part of the game it's within the ethos and the other thing that Chiellini did that um, in the semi-final against Spain before the penalties and the moment that that game was won it seemed to me was drawing the coin toss for the penalties where Chiellini was joking around and what a, a Francophile friend of mine called his his faux bonhomie that was the moment when they won because the, the extent to which penalties are about the psychology and sort of all the back patting and joking and the sort of the the Spanish captain sort of seemed to crumble in the face of it and my children couldn't see what was wrong with that they said oh, well he's just being friendly so there are these ways of was he cheating? Was Chiellini joking about before the penalties? Would that be? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, there's elements of psychological manipulation and stuff in sport that isn't cheating. You know, the Corinthians probably wouldn't approve. Um, but because um, <laughs> penalty shootouts are substantially about psychology. And, you know, there, there have been occasions in the past when, I can't remember, the, I have a picture in my head, but I don't remember who the players are, like, um, somebody walking over to shake the penalty taker's hand as he's lining up. You know, that that's over the line. But just if, you know, the kind of fake, fakely jokey tone didn't seem to me. I mean, I thought, uh, you know, players have been taking yellow cards rather than conceding goal, goals since the dawn of time. I thought he, the, the, I've seen things like that given as red because of the risk to the player's head. Rugby now is having a huge thing about head contact, anything that bumps the player's head is a red card. And I thought, 
Chiellini pulling his shirt, pulling him back, knocking him off his feet, that you'd see all day. But actually, I thought that there was a reckless component to the way he grabbed the shirt and Saka's head went back. You know, he doesn't normally do it quite as obviously as that. It was right at the end of the game. He was, he was a bit tired. Um, you know, as I say, if the, referee, if the referee had given it as a red card, you'd have been a bit surprised, but you wouldn't have said, you know, that's never happened in the history of football before. I, I thought Italy would win the final. And uh, the, the, the reason I, I thought that was that is this thing around the way that Italians defend and Chiellini and um, Bonucci, you know, they are, they come out of that, that tradition where as a friend of mine once said, you can watch a whole season of Serie A and not see a defender have a clear header in the penalty uh, and a forward have a clear header on, on goal in a whole season. And they come out, Chiellini and Bonucci come out of that tradition where it's on the edge of shithousery cheating or it's just how Italian defenders defend that there's a constant niggle to get the forward off balance, pull his shirt, you know, as we're standing, and the shirt pulling, standing on the foot, bumping, all that. It doesn't happen when the ball is in the air coming over for the cross while the referee is looking. It's before that. So by the time pulls the shirt, bumps him, steps on his foot, whatever, then the cross is struck and the forward is just off balance. They can't jump. They don't get off the ground. You know, and it looks like a bad cross or a cross that doesn't go anywhere. It looks like something that was never on. And it's not that. It's just very good defending. And another thing they do very well is they block, you know, they have between them, they're 70 years old. They have a huge depth of experience and they block runs. They stand in front of the place. You know, they know where the forward wants to go. They know the pattern they want to play. They're just in the way. And a lot of that very high level defending of that kind of technical type it's it's about things that it's not the sort of astonishing header they win or the you know um Bobby Moore on Pele tackle from 90, you know it's not the it's not what you see it's stuff that they prevent happening it's like a negative force field it's sort of like what um art critics talk about negative space that's the thing that is extraordinary about people like Chiellini and Bellucci it's stuff that doesn't occur is the measure of how good they are at what they do and that, that side of it was actually what I thought would, along with um, Verratti and Jorginho running the midfield, that I thought that would be just a bit too much for this England team where they are now. And it sort of was, you know, that there were um, that thing about, you know, very, almost no chances, that thing, you know, no clean headers, no clean runs on goal, no space in the penalty area, all that. I mean, that's the thing that they're absolute geniuses at. It's not thrilling, but it's technically, you know, it's technically extraordinary to see. On the question of Italian defenders, what about the moment in the 2006 World Cup final, which France lost to Italy, when Marco Materazzi said something to Zinedine Zidane, which caused Zidane to headbutt Materazzi in the chest, knocking him down. And Zidane, of course, was sent off. I mean, that's a whole different level of professional foul, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And really quite a striking thing about you know, a code that's not about what happens in the game. He clearly said something that, you know, Zidane felt impugned his honour to such a level that he had no choice but to do what he do. And it was very interesting, I thought, that there wasn't a storm of condemnation around that. You know, when you compare it to something like the Maradona handball from 86, that it was sort of, there was this sort of weird, almost acceptance of, you know, well, Matarazzi's of evil cheating psychopath and he did what evil cheating psychopaths do and Zidane is a sort of 
you know, genius who plays by his own code and had no choice except to headbutt him off his feet. Though interestingly, he didn't, you know, if he was going to headbutt him, he could have put him in hospital if he headbutted him hard enough to knock him off his feet. And he, he didn't do that. I mean, that was quite odd and strange. It wasn't, it was sort of almost a formal protest rather than an act of maximum. Because if you headbutted him in the face, he'd have, Matarazzi would have ended up in hospital and Zidane could well have ended up in jail. So it was it was a really strange operatic moment that and kind of magnificent i thought i mean the, the the sense that there are this is the world cup final and some things matter but... So, yeah but some things matter more yeah no that was really interesting i was in france at the time and um i think you know oddly enough i think an english player who did that there would have been much more there would have been a tabloid thing about you know idiot costing than the world yeah, cup well like beckham kicking there when he was yeah there. when he was wound up and kicked whoever it was back healed him um uh, you know, idiot costs England the World Cup would have been the reaction, but that wasn't the reaction at all in France. It was, you know, as it were, you know, man's got to do what a man's got to do. But also the difference that Beckham against the Argentina when he, you know, he was a young, there's no sense in which Zidane would have done anything other than sort of deliberately. And yeah, no, it wasn't hot-headed, oddly. No, because didn't he walk away? He started walking away, and then he turned around and came back. And I don't remember it that vividly. Yeah. <laughs> the movie, but the Hollywood yeah. version in my head may not be quite right. But um... and also, presumably, he'd been he'd been doing it all game as well. But that, but, even, but the anger that that can provoke. I mean, just remember playing at school at one occasion. This guy on the other team, and I've never, I'm not sure I've ever been so angry with anyone in my entire life as that. Just this constant needling anger and the kind of <laughs> wish to kill somebody. Which, you know, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, and it was ridiculous. You know, it was a game of school football, but it was. Uh... There are definitely players who use that to their advantage. I mean, I think um, the rugby's in my mind because I was watching it at the weekend. It's the most recent thing I've seen. And um, uh, Faf de Klerk, the Springbok scrum half, is constantly winding opponents up, chirruping and, you know, saying things and, you know, patting them on the head when they make mistakes and applauding them when they make mistakes and things like that. And. Yeah, that is obviously designed just to make people slightly, slightly lose their reason, you know, not see things clearly, not think straight. You've already mentioned Maradona's handball in 1986, which must be the most famous instance of successful cheating ever. But it, I mean, that's complicated because obviously it was cheating. The goals should have been cancelled. If there'd been VAR, he wouldn't have got it. But the thing, it would have been completely different for me if he hadn't scored that second goal as well. And that there's somehow that Maradona's two goals in that game need to be seen together. That he jump, he out jumps Shilton, who's eight inches taller than him, <laughs> to punch the ball into the net, gets away with it, fools the ref, doesn't fool the England defenders who you know, mob the ref to no avail. And then five minutes later, he scores that other incredible goal where he takes the ball on the touchline and runs around everybody. And, and the, two, the two things, one of them, it seems to me, he says, well, OK, so I did get the handball. But even if you disallowed that, look, I can score goals like this too. But I also wonder if he would have been able to score that second goal if he hadn't got the first. Because the, his sense, I mean, not that Maradona needed much help in feeling omnipotent, but the idea that with the world watching, you can get away with that. I wonder how much of a sort of, I mean, the psychological bump from scoring anyway, how much that helped him score the second goal. Yes, or another way you could look at it was that the the second goal, which was an extraordinary piece of you know, artistry, was his way of admitting that he cheated on the first. You know, that it was a sort of... Rede- so slightly apologetic. Well, redemptive, you know, that I can do that, but I can also do this. But yeah, you totally, you know, that in a way his whole personality was summed up in those 
two girls side by side, you know, their kind of resourceful street kid thing. And then the sort of moment of, you know, absolute transcendent football genius. And the other thing about him, I'm, I'm, I don't have any feeling about that first goal. You know, I, I thought, you know, overall, it's one of the most extraordinary games I've ever seen. And, uh, you know, it was fair enough that Argentina won, really. But that era, you know, they, they get so much more protection now, the top players. The, the way that the tackle is refereed, the way that physical contact is managed and basically reduced. You know, there was more physical contact in that Euro 2020 than I've seen for a long time at the top level because it got to a point where defender, con- you know, makes any contact at all with a forward and it's a free kick. Well, Maradona, you know, he had his ankle broken. Deliberately, yeah. My uncle Goicochea, who who then, you know, had a cabinet in his house where he displayed the boot with which he'd done it. You know, his ankle broken, his ligaments torn. He was out for out for a year, I think, um, completely deliberately. And that that epoch of the game, the most talented player on the opposition side had the, the you know they kicked the living shit out of them uh, for ninety minutes. He was playing in an era that was very very difficult. Same with Pele, you know, who was. I can't remember which World Cup it was. I think it was, um, was it 58? And I think in the 62 one, he was 19, I think, in the first one. And he was sort of kicked off the pitch, you know. And for all that everyone remembers his um, flair and talent and artistry, he was very, very tough as well. And, you know, would routinely leave a foot out and catch defenders and, you know, made a, make a point of, you know, you kick me, I kick you. And it's interesting, it's a counterfactual to think that what those guys who were, absolute giants of the game for me Pelé the greatest player ever to have played up there with just slightly ahead of Messi in second place but if you think of what players like Maradona and Pelé would have done now with the greater protection they're given the greater emphasis on attacking football you know they would have scored half as many goals again you know they'd have really lit up the sky even more than they already did we talked a bit about rugby already but um one thing that someone tweeted about in response to your piece talking about why no mention of Bloodgate that moment when 2008 or 9 I can't remember when the Harlequins player had a fake blood capsule in his mouth but would that count I mean that's the kind of invisible cheating somehow because to anyone watching it looks like oh no no because that was sort of well outside the ethos the only thing about that was that it was it was directed by management which is slightly different it's isn't it wasn't a thing that emerged in the context of what happened on the pitch. You know, the detail of it was they faked an injury to get a player off the pitch so that someone else could come on and take a kick. That's right. And then the, and then the injured player, having taken that can come back on once the blood's been cleared up. Or was it at the... I don't know if he did come back on. I think it was at the end of the game, was it? And it was a... I, I've forgotten the details of it, but I think the crucial thing was the people who really got in trouble were the, rather tragically, actually, the doctor who signed off on it um, and uh, the coach, Dean Richards who was, you know, sus- suspended for quite a while. And yeah, I mean, it was an interesting thing, Bloodgate, but for me, as I say, it was a sort of, as it were, it's a sort of ex- executive level decision rather than something that emerged from what was happening on the field. So it's, clo- it's closer to the Calciopoli, it's closer to the Italian managers fixing who refs which match and stuff. It's that kind of... I mean, there was a recent thing um, in the Six Nations in rugby with, um, actually, no, it wasn't the Six Nations... I've seen this in French rugby, I'm trying to remember what it was, but a couple of things recently have come up with whether players have genuine head injuries. As rug, rugby has, had, has a slight tangle about when players can be who've been substituted can go back on the field. And you sometimes get these, you know, apparent misunderstandings or not, that, you know, someone's gone off 
for a head injury and then it turns out he'd be very useful for a scrum and he either recovers from the head injury or someone else gets injured and if someone else gets injured and it's dangerous to play on which usually means it's an injury in the front row you can bring the player who was taken off back on but only if it was a substitute not if it was a head injury assessment so and there have been a couple of instances like that recently um which again you know which are in my view again both against the ethos and the game and are cheating but they're again they're slightly things that the management decides to do they're they're kind of you know it's as it were the boss class manipulating the rules rather than something that the players have cooked up and what and the ball tampering and um, australia's ball tampering in cricket was that not management level as well or was that they would do, they would say not okay there's no evidence that it was yeah but that's part of why that's been very damaging for australian cricket because um you know i don't think there are many people who follow the game closely who really buy the official account of cricket australia that you know as this is the only time in the history of australian cricket that they ever tampered the ball and they just happened to be caught on television ball tampering is complicated though because it's gone on for forever and also there's a line because obviously there are some things you are allowed to do with the ball i mean you're allowed to polish one side of it and and those sorts of things i mean to where where do you what are you allowed to do to the ball and what are you not and even you know the fact that you 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 begin the gradual decay of the ball over the course of a match is part of is part of the game no i know and then the players do things like throwing it in very hard with one bounce instead of throwing it direct to the wicket keeper to scuff it up more which is within the rules and then you know actually scratching it up isn't um, i mean there's the you know the great pakistan team that invented reverse swing in cricket you know, Pakistan's a hard place to play cricket when, you know, the pitch dries out, the shine has gone, the initial shine has gone off the ball. It's thirty-eight degrees. I think some of the uh, some of the mysteries of how the Pakistan greats got to invent this thing of the ball swinging the other way as the physics of the physics of the shininess and heaviness changed. You know, it might all be clean living and virtuous thoughts, but or there might be something else to it. But actually, you know, who cares? It was one of the glories. Of cricket and it's really as, as it's entered the game it sort of in my view made it made it more interesting because you know i think in some respects at the top level cricket had got too weighted towards the batsman and it, it's quite boring watching people just grind out huge totals over and over again over five days but i was a bowler so i would say that but yeah it's it's by and large it's a pretty venial sin in my view doing small things to the ball in cricket because it's checked after every wicket if you watch cricket you notice they roll the ball chuck the ball to the umpire after the fall of every wicket so there are limits on what can be done and you know the thing that made the Australian thing really blow up was the culture around it you know the way they behaved around it I think more than the actual moment and the sledging and yeah and the fact that they've been kind of get as it was slightly self-appointedly have this sense of you know we know where the line is and everyone else felt well actually no you do you're way over it all the time and there was a thing with sledging that teams from some cultures regard you know that kind of abuse often quite personal abuse as a form of cheating in itself you know saying horrible things to people impugning their honor sometimes saying horrible things about their families you know uh what some teams regarded Australian teams would regard as you know playing hard but fair within the rules and they had very abrasive relationships with some uh, particularly subcontinental teams for whom those things were way over the line you know incredibly personally offensive and therefore a form of cheating. What about in cricket, the practice of, of man cadding, where the, when the, the batsman, the one who isn't, the non-facing batsman starts creeping up the wicket and the bowler 
sort of runs him out by by tapping his wicket with the ball. Well, there's always a tremendous amount of outrage when it happens. Um, in my view, I mean, I already said I belong to that oppressed subordinate class of bowlers. So from, from my point of view, um, it's completely fine to run the batsman out if he's trying to cheat and gain an unfair advantage. You know, the rules are really simple. He's got to stay within the crease until the ball's bowled. Batsmen routinely abuse it and sneak part of the way down the pitch. So I think if he's doing that, from from my perspective, yeah, run him out, run him out all day long and twice before before breakfast. But the one thing I would say is that what seems to have evolved with that is that there's an informal code. That's that thing. I suppose again, we're in that area of difference between the ethos and the rules. That you know, it's within the rules to run him out. But the the, the ethos now is that you give a warning that the bowler stops at the moment of delivery, the batsman's out of the crease and he just holds the ball next to the stumps and says, look, you know, stop it. Next, that this is your last warning. Next time I'm going to run you out. And when they do that, I notice people, as it were, you know, allow the bowler to uh, to do the man counting. But yeah, from my point of view, I think, um, you know, it's one of those weird ways in which cricket's distorted in the batsman's favour. The rules are simple. Stay within the crease. And the question of the body line bowling in the 30s, for example, that this idea that you things you you... A gentleman doesn't do, or even more recently, that those you know, the bowling which the, where the ball is just goes at the batsman's head time after time again. That high bouncing ball towards the and appears aimed at the head, which is within the rules and within the ethos. Well, there you're allowed a, fi- a finite number. They do step in. I mean, the thing about the body line was it was was within the rules, but it was against the ethos. And the that you mentioned the idea of it, you know, the gentlemanliness that part of the thing. With that is there was a strong class component to it because um, Douglas Jardine, the captain, was posh and acted posh and there were little signifiers of that. And one of the things being in those days, they still had gentlemen versus players matches. And one of the ways you could tell teams apart was that the players were white, but the gentlemen wore cream. They wore cream linen. And Jardine wore cream. And he was posh and let everyone know it and there's a very good book very good biography by Duncan Hamilton about Larwood Harold Larwood the fast bowler who implemented the body line strategy and who subsequently actually when he retired he went to live in Australia rather wonderfully um but at the time he got a lot of the blame you know um Jardine's idea Larwood was the enforcer and there was lots of opprobrium directed at Larwood especially afterwards which you know he didn't at all deserve but in that book, Duncan Hamilton makes a, he pays attention to that thing about the class that, you know, as it was the officer giving the orders and the non-com soldier executing them. And that was quite an important part of the dynamic. And it was the posh bloke, the gentleman who was just completely ripping up the spirit of the game. You know, he was the one who was, and a, a, it's probably the case that a player couldn't have done it, that only someone who felt that they were above it sufficiently above it to want to execute a win at all cost strategy that in a weird way it was only the posh person who had permission to do that well he'd only look to turn downing street to uh, see that yeah that there's a sort of separate separate code for us as opposed to them yeah definitely john lancaster thank you very much thanks very much tom you can read john lancaster's piece in the latest issue of the lrb along with alison light on barbara pym a never-before-published piece by Patrick Lee Firmer on the Manny Peninsula, and Gary Young on Baltimore.